You know, a lot of gruesome and cruel events have happened in recent years. Uh, you can think back on a, on a large scale uh, to the atrocities that have happened the last several years in Syria. And we, we saw intolerable human suffering. You can think back more locally to just a few weeks when a deranged killer walked into a worship service and began to, to, to kill people. Or on Friday, an attack in a mosque in, in Egypt that killed over 200 people. Everywhere you look, you, you see something is wrong. Something's not right. Something's broken. If you look into history, you can, you can pinpoint human dictators who have killed millions and millions of people. How can people commit such atrocities? How can people be so cruel? And we think it's those people. We know those people are evil. But if we're honest, we have to recognize that there's something evil within ourselves. We, we have to recognize that, that there's something in our own hearts that isn't quite right. We may not use a gun to assassinate anyone, but we've certainly used our words. We may not plant a bomb to kill hundreds but there's an impulse within us that demands our own way, and we don't care uh, who it hurts in, in the process. What, what is this inside of us? What is it that's messed up, that, that's broken in every person? In some people, it manifests itself in extreme evil. In others, it manifests itself in lighter forms, you might say. But nevertheless, it always manifests itself in each one of us. So what is messed up? And more importantly, how do, how do we fix that? How do we, how do we work through that? What do you do to fix what is messed up in people? What hope do we have in the face of evil in general and more critically of our own sinfulness, of our own broken hearts? What about your sinful heart? What do you do about that? This morning, we're going to think about these questions as we focus in on Isaiah 53. We're continuing a brief series, Hope Rises, where we take a big picture look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 1.1 claims that the book was written by the prophet Isaiah. There have been a lot of folks who have tried to take Isaiah apart and argue for, for different authors and such as that. And, and we covered a few weeks back the uh, idea that it's probably best uh, just to understand that Isaiah is written by who it claims to be written by, the, the prophet Isaiah. Um, as, you, as you look at this book, you're going to see that Isaiah prophesied about events that, that were going to come, sometimes in his lifetime and sometimes a couple hundred years later and sometimes events that would happen much later with the, the coming of Christ. Last week we looked at chapters 40 through 48 and we saw the greatness of God, the fact that God is the one and only true God. Well, this week, we're going to kind of survey chapters 40 through 55. And at this point, Isaiah is prophesying to future exiles. These are people who were taken captive uh, by Babylon when, when Jerusalem fell in 586. They were taken captive into Babylon. Now, remember, Isaiah is prophesying somewhere uh, around 700 B.C., 740 to 700 B.C. This is the time that he's prophesying. So we're talking about events that are at least 100 years, uh, over 100 years down the road uh, in this particular situation. So this is what was going to happen. Isaiah had called the people of Judah to faithfulness. They rejected God's call to faithfulness. They continued to rebel. God allowed uh, Babylon to come, to conquer them, to destroy them. 
They were carried off into captivity. And now Isaiah, again, well over 100 years before the events occur, he's prophesying to this community who is living in exile in Babylon. So first, uh, we'll take uh, a big picture look at chapters 49 through 55, and then we'll zero in again on chapter 53. As we survey these nine chapters, we'll see that God is a God of unimaginable grace. He's a God of unimaginable grace. In chapters 49 through chapter 52, verse 12, we see the mission of God's servant. What's the mission of God's servant? It's to to restore Israel. It's to bring God's people back. It's also to bring salvation to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. As you look at chapter 52, beginning in verse 13 through chapter 53, we see this emphasis on the redemption that God's servant will bring. And then... Isaiah 54 through 55, we see the blessings of God's servant, the blessings that are experienced because of what God does through his servant. These chapters focus on God's grace, of his desire to rescue people from sin and from brokenness. And what we see throughout these chapters is that God rescues not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of his own. Now, a figure throughout these chapters is referred to Over and over in these chapters, you see this reference to God's servant. Well, as you read uh, these chapters about God's servant, what you're going to see is part of the time that's referring to a faithful remnant within Israel. But then other times, it's pointing forward to the Lord Jesus, as we'll see in today's passage. Let's read, uh, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one 
my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Our text gives five truths about God's grace in the sacrifice of his son. First, his servant is crushed and exalted. God's servant is crushed and exalted. Look in verse 13. He says, my servant shall act wisely. Now, God here is speaking of a servant who would come and accomplish his purposes. Who is this servant? Well, this passage was pointing forward to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus would come and he would accomplish God's purposes. And and here we see in verse 13 that his servant would be exalted. In other words, because he had fulfilled God's plan for him, God would exalt him and lift him up. And verse 14 God speaks directly to his servant for a moment. He said, and many were astonished at you. So he's speaking directly to Jesus. Why were people astonished? Well, he answers the question because Jesus had been so abused and so tortured that it didn't even look like a person. That's what Isaiah is saying here. You faced so much suffering. You don't even have human semblance. Verse 15 says, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Now, This idea of sprinkling goes back to the Mosaic law. For example, in Exodus 29, verse 21, the Lord instructed, take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle them on Aaron, who was the priest, and on his garments, as well as on his sons and their garments. So he and his garments will be holy, as well as his sons and their garments. So this blood was used to sprinkle on the priests to to purify them. It was a purification rite. And what we see here in verse 15 is that Jesus would sprinkle many nations. He would bring many people into a right relationship with God. He would purify many people. In fact, it says in verse 15 that kings would shut their mouths. In other words, people in positions of power would be so amazed at the work of the Lord Jesus that they would close their mouth. They would be speechless. They would have nothing to say. Continuing on in verse 15, he says... For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. In other words, this plan of God saving people on the basis of the Lord Jesus was brand new to them. They had never heard anything like that before. Why? Because all people throughout time have thought that we could somehow earn ourselves into a right relationship with God. We've imagined that by our own strength, by our own goodness, something like that, we could merit God's favor. And so when the kings hear that there's only one way to be in right relationship with God, they, they're speechless. They, they don't have anything to say. One commentator said it like this. It's a message that could not possibly have had its origins in the sinful heart of man. For all religions of human origin find in man himself the answer to all problems. But this message points to the servant of the Lord as their only hope. This was a new message. This was a message that hadn't been heard before. You know, throughout time, there is this emphasis on, on saving yourself. If you go back to, to pagan times and pagan gods, people tried to own, earn their way into a right relationship with God by, by pleasing the pagan god in some way. In ancient times, sometimes people would uh, sacrifice their own child trying to get a god's favor, uh, trying to gain some favor with the god. Now, in the 21st century, we're far more sophisticated but we are still trying to save ourselves all the time. Go into the self-help movement of a bookstore and you'll see 
you'll see book after book after book after book after book after book after book. Why? Because you can, you can, you can save yourself. You can, it's inside. Everything you need's right here if you read many of the self-help books. What else has our society tried to say would save us? Well, there's been emphasis upon education. How do we get saved? Well, if you educate, if you can just educate people, please understand me. I think education is critical and important. But education cannot save the human soul. It can't fix the deepest problem. So while we're advocates of education, we recognize that there's something else deeper that still needs to be repaired. And other folks in, in our culture have said, well, therapy, you need therapy. If you, if you get counseling, well, well that's going to that's gonna help you and save you. And please understand me, counseling that's based on Scripture is incredibly helpful. Counsel that's faithful to the Word, I think, is critical in our lives. But we must admit that therapy alone can't fix the deepest need of the human heart. It, it can't do it. And still others have this grand vision of, of, of government, that, that government from womb to tomb can fix everything, that, that government can, can take care of everything. And what, what a crazy thought. We recognize that, that the government can help in some things, but the government's no savior. The government can't fix the deepest needs. So, so while all of these can have parts of them that are good and parts of them that are positive for human fortune, we recognize that the deepest need of a human heart can't be met in and of ourselves. It can't be done. We are sinners who cannot rescue ourselves. We need a rescuer. And what does Isaiah say? Isaiah says that God crushed his own son for our rescue. So we've seen that Jesus was crushed. And for that reason, because of his obedience, God would exalt him. Second, God's servant is rejected by people. God's servant is rejected by people. Look in chapter 53, verse 1. Isaiah asks, who has believed? Who has, has received this message? And what Isaiah is saying is that when Christ comes, there'll be so many who reject the message of salvation that he brings. There'll be so many who turn away. In fact, in 1 John, or pardon me, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, uh, speaking of Jesus The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him. And yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And this is what Isaiah says. The people are not going to receive you. They're going to reject you. In verse 1, he also says, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And in Scripture, when you see the arm of the Lord, this has the idea of, of God's strength. To who has God's strength been revealed? Well, this points to the fact that none of us can be in a right relationship with God without him working in our hearts and enabling us to to turn to him in in faith and trust. In verse 2, his servant, God's servant, grew up before him. In other words, Jesus was born as this baby, and he grew up here on earth, and God's eye was always on him. The father's eye was, was on his son. He grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Notice that Jesus didn't come like a towering tree. No, he came as a baby in humility. He came as a little one. He, he had no former majesty. In other words, there was nothing about Jesus that would make you put him on the, the cover of Rolling Stones or, or Sports Illustrated. It wasn't like that. He came as somebody that, that was very normal and common, not, not someone that would arrest your attention and go, oh man, look at that guy. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. In verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. What, what did people, how did people respond to Jesus? They rejected him. They, they hated him. They despised what he had to say. They, they turned away from him. And what you see 
is that in this world, we have a tendency to idolize all the wrong things. We have a tendency to, to, to look at uh, external appearance. We have a tendency to look at, hey, who's got money? Who's got this? Who's got fame? Who's got fortune? Who's got stuff? All those things. These are the things that we often idolize, and Jesus had none of those things. What Isaiah is saying is that he wasn't a rock star. He wasn't a superstar, but he was the rock upon which God would save his people. That's what Isaiah is saying. He was God's plan for our rescue. So what we've seen here is that Jesus was rejected by the people. Third, God's servant died for sin that wasn't his own. God's servant died for sin that wasn't his own. Look in verse four. The word says, surely he has borne our griefs. Now, what I want you to see throughout this this section of scripture is this emphasis on the one versus the many. He has borne our griefs our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. So what you you see happening is this. Jesus is taking on our guilt and our sin upon himself. That's that's what's happening. In fact, he says um, he took on our sorrows, he took on our griefs, yet we esteemed him stricken. We looked at him as if he was rejected by God. Now this is irony of ironies. Here's an innocent man coming to take our sin upon himself. And, and what, did, what did people do? They looked at him and go, oh, look, this guy, there's no way God's hand is upon him. Instead, we should have been the ones who realized we're smitten by our own sin. And here was a God, a, a man of innocence, a man sent from the Father himself. In verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions, the one taking the penalty for the many. What does that mean? He was nailed to the cross because of our sin. He was, he was pierced for, for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now remember, this is, again, Isaiah's preaching this some 700 years before the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Notice that he's preaching it as if it's already happened. Why? Because the prophet is saying it's so certain that it's going to happen. I can preach it as if it were, as if it already had. I can preach it in the past tense. Because it's a certainty. God will do these things. He will accomplish these things in his son. He says the chastisement that was upon him brought us peace. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so the, the chastisement, the punishment that God put upon Jesus enables us to have peace with God. That, that, that's the way that we have a right relationship with God. Now notice in verse 5. It says, by his wounds, we are healed. Now, there are many today who preach a prosperity gospel and they go to this verse right here and they'll say, well, by his wounds, you're healed because Jesus died on the cross. You can claim healing no matter what. God will heal you. If you're a believer, you can claim that God's gonna heal you. You can speak it into being. You can say it into, you you can think it into being and it'll happen. But this passage isn't about physical healing. We can see that. This passage is about the sickness of our souls. It's about the sickness of our souls that are, that are committed to, to sin, that are, that are driven by, by evil. Don't misunderstand me. God can heal believers. There's no doubt. But this doesn't, this doesn't mean that because of the cross, all Christians are automatically healed if they have enough faith. That is a, a false teaching. It's not real. What this passage is saying is that God heals our deepest need. And the deepest need of our souls is the sickness of our souls. It's the sinful impulse. It's the sinfulness that breaks all of us, that ruins all of us, that makes us selfish, that makes us demand our own way, that doesn't care what happens to other people. That, that is broken. And that is what Jesus came to heal, to forgive and cleanse. 
In verse six, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And here there's a picture of, of, of the people scattered out with no shepherd. We've all turned our own way. In other words, we've all, we've all lived how we wanted to live. We've done what we wanted to do. We've sinned and said to God, I don't care what you say. You say this, but I'll do that. You say X, I'll do Y. You don't tell me. That, that's what was happening here. It's funny. What was happening here nearly 3,000 years ago is the same thing that's happening today. The, the very same thing. We, we go our own way. We, we think we can chart our own path. It, it never works. Look in verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Father laid on Jesus the guilt for our sin. He laid it on him at the cross. What a beautiful message of God's rescue and redemption. A few months ago, there was a, a family who was visiting the Solfatera crater outside of Naples, Italy. It's a, uh, uh, a volcano that's um, dormant and still emits jets of steam and sulfurous gas and such as that. It's a popular tourist destination. So they had gone there to, to visit this crater. And they had an 11-year-old boy who unfortunately went through a barrier and his parents, and he died in the process of them trying to save him. Now, we understand a parent dying to try to rescue their boy. We get that. It makes all the sense in the world to us. What parent wouldn't give their own life to rescue their son or their daughter? But would it make any sense to give your life for the guilty? See, you know what? I'll die. This person has done X, Y, Z. I'll die, let him go free. Do you see that's what God has done for us? God has taken the, the guilt and the punishment that we deserve. He's, he's taken that punishment and he's put it on a son. He, he's taken the innocent, the one who did no sin, and he, he made him die for the guilty, for the wicked. What kind of love is that? That the father would give his own son that we might know rescue, that we might know forgiveness. So we've seen that Jesus died for sin that was not his own. Fourth, God's servant was put to death, uh, though put to death, was innocent. God's servant, though put to death, was innocent. Looking at verses seven through nine, we see that, that God's servant was oppressed and yet he opened not his mouth. And we see the fulfillment of that. For example, in Matthew 27 through 14, when Jesus stood before trial, uh, he was before Pilate. Pilate was asking him questions, and this is what we see in verse 14. But Jesus didn't answer him on even one charge so that the governor was quite amazed. Jesus kept his mouth shut. That's exactly what Isaiah was seeing here. Jesus didn't try to defend himself, or he just, he took, he took the oppression, he took the punishment, that was coming to him. In verse eight, by oppression, oppression and judgment, he was taken away. In other words, it was by the wickedness of these evil people that Jesus was nailed to the cross. But what we see in this passage and others throughout it is ultimately God was at work in the midst of the sinfulness of these people to accomplish his plan. Acts 4, 27 through 28 says it like this for in fact in this city both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed to do whatever your hand 
and your will had predestined to take place. So God had planned to, to, to rescue and to save through his son. Verse eight, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. In other words, he was punished that my people might be saved. In verse nine, he was given a grave among the wicked. Now, when Jesus was crucified, you'll remember that he was crucified between two criminals. So he was, he was executed in the midst of these criminals. This was the kind of death that, that he was given, a grave among the evil. But then look in verse nine, and with a rich man in his death. God wouldn't have his son, after suffering and dying on the cross, be treated as a common criminal. Instead, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, came and took Jesus' body down and put him in his own tomb. And so Isaiah was prophesying this uh, years in advance before it occurred. Notice in verse 9 at the end there, there's no violence in his hands. There was no deceit in his mouth. What's Isaiah emphasizing? He's emphasizing the fact that Jesus was innocent, that he didn't die for his sin. He died for your sin and my sin. That's what Isaiah is saying, not his own. His servant was put to death, though innocent. Now, many of you have probably heard in the news lately about Charles Manson passing away, one of the most notorious killers of all times. Now, Manson on many occasions claimed that he was innocent of the, the charges with which he had, or the, the crimes with which he, which he had been charged. He, he claimed to be innocent. And we know that many who are guilty claim to be innocent, but not so with the Savior. Jesus was innocent. It was true. He died a wicked man's death. He was executed as if he had been guilty of a horrible crime. But Jesus was innocent. He was sinless, without sin. So we've seen that Jesus, though put to death, was innocent. Fifth, his servant is exalted through his sin-bearing sacrifice. God's servant is exalted through his sin-bearing sacrifice. Look in verse 10. He says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Again, we see that God planned to, to send Jesus to the cross for our rescue. It was God's plan. Why? Because of his great love. He doesn't just say, don't sin, and then say, well, if you do, you're on your own. What does he say? Don't sin. But because you dropped the ball, I'm going to give up my own son. That's the kind of love I have for you. That, that's the way that I, I want to, to rescue you. It was the will of the Lord to put him to, to death, to crush him. In verse 10, he says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Here we see that Jesus' suffering wasn't just physical. It wasn't just in his body, but it was deep within. It was in his soul that, that he experienced estrangement from God and that he experienced suffering and, and anguish. And he says he will see his offspring. What does this imply? That he's not going to stay dead. This implies that he's going to live to see his offspring. In other words, we kind of get a, a pointer to the resurrection. The fact that this servant wasn't going to remain in the grave, but he was going to come back to life. Who were his offspring? It's those who would believe. It's those who would become uh, Christians and, and who would put their faith in him. He, he would see his offspring. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul. In other words, out of the brokenness uh, of all that he endured, he would be satisfied. Why? Because the plan of God for the redemption of sinful people would have been accomplished and people would be able to be saved. 
Notice again in verse 11, this idea of the one who accounts the many righteous. In other words, Jesus justifies us before God, makes us right with God. We, we see that there'll be many accounted righteous because of what Jesus did. In verse 12, therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. What's this saying? This is kind of a, 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 an imagery of a victor in war. I'm gonna divide up the spoil with the strong and, and give a portion with the many. Who are the many and the strong? Were they the seed that we saw in Isaiah 53, 10? They are those who would believe. In other words, Jesus would share this joyful celebration with those who would believe all that he has accomplished. Why in verse 12? Because he poured out his soul to death. He gave up his very life. He bore the sin of many. Now what what we call this, as we call this Jesus becoming sin, for us. Jesus taking the weight of our sin and dying for it and making a way for us to be in a right relationship with God. He took, he bore the sin of many. What an incredible blessing. God's plan to rescue sinners meant that Jesus would die in our place. And you know what? This takes sin seriously. The cross takes sin seriously. God's justice isn't mocked. His justice isn't overlooked. Sin is served the most serious sentence of all. It's served the sentence of death. The only thing is that we didn't have to die. Jesus did. That's the death that's placed on Jesus, the death that we deserve, the death that that we should have now, many who claim to, to be Christians today can't stand the idea of God's wrath. They say, well, God, God's not a God of wrath, and yet we see throughout Scripture that God hates sin. He hates all sin. One of the reasons God hates sin is because it hurts people. It, it, it harms people. And it, it's a reality as you look at Scripture that, that God is a God of love, but he also is a God of wrath towards sin. In the... In, in some of the, the churches today, there, there are folks who will say, you know what, you can't talk about God's wrath. You, can, you can't do that. And yet if we're faithful to Scripture, we must. We must say that, that the Scripture teaches that God hates sin, and if we don't have our sin covered over, we'll have to stand before Him one day. And we'll be separated from Him forever, for eternity, because of our sinfulness. That, that's what the scriptures clearly teach. So let's think together more about how these truths affect our lives. Number one, know the basics about God's grace and the gospel. You are dead in sin without hope. You're dead in sin without hope. That's what scripture says, what Isaiah is saying here. You can't save yourself. Your sin has estranged you. It's separated you. It's kept you from being in a relationship with a God who is completely pure, absolutely pure. But what has God done? He sent his own son to take the penalty for your sin upon himself. And when you turn from your sin and you put your faith in Jesus, then God saves you. And you're made right with God. Suddenly, all that sin that was in your life, that sin is covered over by the Lord Jesus' sacrifice. And now God looks down on you and says, you know what? That's my boy. That's my girl. It's not because I'm good or you're good. It's because the perfect sinlessness of Jesus has been credited to our account and God looks down and says, he's pure, she's pure, he's mine, she's mine. That, that's, that's what's happening here. What an incredible blessing. I've given you some definitions there for those of you who want to think more deeply about this. 
But all of us need to know the basics of the gospel, the basics of God's grace. Number two, you can't earn God's favor. You you can't earn God's favor. That isn't how it works. In God's holy splendor, he can't receive any sin. He can't overlook our sin. It would compromise his nature, his character. God is so pure that every sin, a single sin, is unacceptable to him. Think about the FBI. The FBI is meant to ensure that laws are followed and and justice takes place. FBI agents uh, uh, work to to make sure that if a crime's been committed, that that there's going to be uh, uh, a reckoning for that because justice must be upheld. Now, what about an FBI agent who breaks the law as he pleases, who does what he wants? Doesn't matter what the law says. Well, we here's something like that. Well, you can't do that. You work for the FBI. You're supposed to be enforcing laws and then you think you can break the law. That makes no sense. Well, you see, for God to overlook our sin in an even greater way would make no sense. His very nature is purity. He can't overlook sin. He can't do it. So you see, you can't earn God's favor. You can't be good enough to earn the favor of a God who's holy. Number three, Here's a question. Have you responded to the unimaginable grace of God? Have you responded to his grace? Just knowing the facts about God will not put you in a right relationship with him. There must be a turning point in your life. So you've got to say to God, you know what, God? I'm tired of going my own way. I'm tired of doing what I want to do. God, I want to follow you and I'm turning from going my own way and I'm following you now. God, I'm putting my life in your hands. And in simple faith, when you call out to the Lord, he rescues, he saves. Not counted righteous based on what you can do, counted righteous based on what Jesus has done for you. We need to come to terms with the reality of sin. Your sin is not a hangnail. It's not a stub toe. Your sin is not even a broken arm or a broken leg. No, your sin is a devastating heart attack. Your sin is a ticking time bomb, a massive aneurysm. That's what sin is. Your sin means that you'll die eternally. But it doesn't have to mean your death. You can turn from your sin and you can find God's grace and mercy, the grace that's available through Christ. Number four, be thankful to God for offering his son. God gave his own son. Be grateful for that. Would, would you have a way to, to know God, to be in a right relationship with him? Could you have the hope of heaven apart from, from what Jesus did? The answer is no. Our good works don't cancel out our sin. We need Jesus. So let's be thankful if we know him. Let's be grateful. Maybe you heard of Mike Hughes, a California man who made a homemade rocket and he had planned to to go 1800 feet into the air at a speed of of about 500 miles per hour this was prepped for his ultimate goal his ultimate goal was to go up into space and to take a photo of the earth and prove that it was flat that it was like a disc instead of round this this was his goal now he's in the process of, of trying to accomplish that may kill himself trying to prove himself and we can see when we hear something like this how silly it is How crazy it is. But you know what? Many are doing the very same thing spiritually. Are you imagining that you can get to God on your own terms? 
Are you sure that, that God's going to look at you and go, well, yeah, he's a pretty good person. She's all right. She's not, she's not half bad. Are you certain that, that God's going to stand there and there's going to be a scale and your good deeds and your, your, your bad deeds are going to be put on this scale and as long as the good deeds are, you know, it's going to be close, but as long as the good deeds are a little better, you're, you're fine. God's going to high five you, come in, everything's great. Are, are, you, are you sure about that? Are you certain that everything will be fine when you meet God? Listen, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's like trying to build your own rocket to prove that the earth is flat. You may trick yourself, but friend, you won't get into heaven based on your own ability, based on your own righteousness. There's only one way into heaven, and it's through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. God has shown us unimaginable grace in his son. So believers, be grateful. Live your life in complete devotion to the Savior who's rescued you. If you know him, then live wholeheartedly for the God who gave his own, his own son for you. But for those who are here today who are not Christians, or you're not really sure, listen, today, today you're hearing the reality that there's a God who loves you so much that he sacrificed his own son. Please, I plead with you, don't, don't turn away from that. How can you be saved? Call out to him and say, God, forgive me. I want to follow you and God will, will save you. If you think you're going to get to heaven because you're a pretty good person, it's a dangerous ride, kind of like riding a homemade rocket perhaps into outer space. That's a ride, friend, that will not end well. Instead, today, you could see the unimaginable grace of God. Join me in prayer.